I think the Venetians, they need such realities. And I also need Venice. I mean, it's not a metropole like London or Paris, like where you have the customers living there. Not being a metropole, the living conditions in Venice are much better than they would be in London or Paris. It's much easier to live in Venice, but still I can work with the same clientele. And especially in Venice, I mean, that's the walking city. You don't buy tires for the car, but you buy good shoes because I have to walk. I think the city is made to measure to the humans, for me. Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking, where artists and artisans tell their stories through the materials they choose. In the second of our Venice series, Mike Axon and I are meeting Austrian-born shoemaker Gabrielle Gemeiner. As we set off, a trolley rumbles by bearing bread, and then another carrying bottles. A man trudges over with a cart to fetch some crates of vegetables from a passing boat and wheel them back to his restaurant. This is a city on foot. As we make the last tight turn into Gabrielle's courtyard, we find her sitting at a large wooden desk in her shop window, wearing a work apron and smiling. A shoe is jammed between her knees as she files the base of it. In front of her are a wide selection of hammers, tapes, knives and glues. Leather ribbons are stapled on the walls with dozens of wooden-handled tools slotted inside their curves. Suspended above her head is a forest of wooden shoe lasts. Can I ask you to tell us your name and what you do? My name is Gabrielle Gmeiner and I am a shoemaker. I was born in Austria in a small, small city called Bregenz, which is on the lake of Constance in the west of Austria, close to the Swiss border. Was shoemaking something that your family did? Actually, there was a grand, grand uncle. And, but I've never met him when he was alive. So when he died, the relatives, they said to my father, you doctor, isn't you making shoes? Wouldn't you be interested in, in having his tools and um, certain things? And I went to see, and uh, he was actually, uh, years, years ago, a, a good shoemaker. Then, of course, he ended up on, in repairing shoes uh, like everybody did in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Nobody wants to have made handmade shoes. I have this working bench here and uh, I found really interesting um, old materials. Handmade nails and uh, especially for shoes, nice tools. And, it was a nice inheritance. So how about your childhood and your education? What sort of things were you interested in then? It was a free childhood in nature. It's countryside there. And uh, I got interested in school and uh, art and making sculptures, which I also did during the school time. And 
I also was orientated in languages, so that already prepared my way then to move freely in the whole of Europe. And how did the decision come about to make shoes? I was very much into arts and I was doing sculptures in clay and any kind of materials. I was experimenting and my uh, thoughts were, uh, no one of my family uh, has been an artist and doing arts just for the art's sake. So I decided to, to make something applied, some applied art, which is a via di mezzo. It's a, it's a halfway through and I built up a whole philosophy about what is the shoe, how does the shoe influence on the human being. So uh, if I create a sculpture for the feet, uh, how does it influence of, uh, in the movement uh, and the well-being and uh, what is the shoe today? It's the basement of our modern living. And, uh, so it was very complex and, and actually I said, oh, I want to make uh, portraits of uh, in a very detail for the persons and I, I will work for. And uh, yeah, that was the, the initial idea. How old were you when you came up with this philosophy of shoemaking? I was about, uh, when I was 18, uh, something like that. And then I, I already started looking for a place where to learn the techniques. And I first went to, to Vienna to the old master shoemakers and they they were all dusty and rigid actually and uh, said, oh no, no, it's no trade for ladies. And um, I said, oh dear, <laughs> I was desperate. There was a, a lady doing from, from London doing costume designer, Nikki Gillibrand, and she said, oh, there is a school in London. You should should have a look there. Uh, the school specialised in shoemaking. So that's how I started really to get into the, the craft. So you came to London when? When I was nineteen. So uh, okay. <laughs> it's uh, ninety-one. <laughs> and what was that, the school? That, that was the Cold Rainers College, and that was in Hackney at the time. And I. Um, got inscribed in, in this uh, technical shoemaking course. That was a two years course. And it was great because uh, I had a really nice all overview of the of shoemaking. So, but then uh, as the, the, the school was rather specialized in, in preparing the students for the industrial uh, the commercial uh, side. The commercial, the, yeah, co industrial production of shoes. Uh, I, I tried to find my way in, 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 in what I was looking for, in the handmaking, in the very personal shoemaking. And I found, I found also the companies, the workshops in London making such shoes, of course. I had the chance to work on all the details, like making a shoes, really, it's, it's composed by different professions. So there is the last maker, there is the pattern maker, there is the clicker, the clicker, <laughs> very special term. They are cutting the leather and then there is the, the upper sewer. So uh, I could really experiment with it all. And um, the good thing at school is that you can make errors, you can experiment. So if there is all these different professions within shoemaking, do you do all of them? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. That's a quite holistic <laughs> thing, but that's part of me because every step makes part of creating, I think. So uh, making the last, I'm already thinking of uh, how many layers I have to add, how can I add the layers, so what's coming out at the end. So each step influences on, on the shape, on, on the outcome of the shoe, uh, yeah. Wow. So um, what was the step after Cordwainers? After Cordwainers, I, I did some work experiences. I, I went to John Lobb as well. I did some months there. I did some holiday substitutions and uh, I went to the, the home workers. So John Lobb, they work with the people that have their own workshop and they would send them the material and the work to do to them and they would send it back. So they're not all, all the people working for John Lobb, they're not all sitting at St. James Street. So uh, I went to one of them, and that was in Totmorden up north, uh, near, near Manchester. And uh, I could realize a shoe with uh, their help, and I did these kind of work experiences. So um, we're sitting in Venice. How did you get to be here? was traveling about to learn and the, the 10 years of learning process so there was london then uh, i was uh, in paris as well there was a school specializing in, in hand sewing directly related to hermes the, the, the saddlery sewing and in between that i also realized autonomously private art projects just to give you a short uh, description is uh, like the first one was coming back from Vienna. I went to the place I'm coming from. It was a very countryside place and uh, apparently not very much culture. So I was trying to make a research about uh, still the old crafts in the region and the, the materials they used to the farmers to create shoes or, or anything else and I used these materials to create four uh, pairs of shoes which were portraits of personalities from literature. I have a question. How would you describe your aesthetic, your design, your philosophy of design? It's very, very classic and I think it varies really from person to person. I'm trying to, to get also the, the person's wishes. Uh, I mean, uh, what they, they want to have the shoes for. Uh, but uh, the aesthetic in, in itself, I think it's all about proportions. It's all about... Uh, now, if a, a customer has a difficult foot, so many of us, we have difficult feet, uh, I, I want to portray this foot to gain the measurements, but have a really nice aesthetic uh, shoe coming out. And that, that varies really from foot to foot. And it's all about proportions. So my creativity now, it's, it's not that much anymore uh, about uh, experimenting materials. It's, it's about finding the right proportions in thicknesses, uh, distances, uh, curves, uh, one millimeter here or one there. I mean, it, it's such a small object, uh, a shoe far smaller than a house would be. So one millimeter more or less, it changes the aesthetic. So uh, it's all about that. But it's very classic. 
Great. I think that takes us on beautifully to the process of making a shoe. So can you tell us what happens from someone expressing an interest in having a pair of your shoes? Well, I always start with the measurements, of course. <laughs> and uh, just taking the measurements it's and, and talking about the foot, it takes about one hour. So the person would come here and um, I take the measurements when the person is seated and there is just a part of the pressure on the foot and then standing as well with the whole of the pressure. So that sometimes changes a lot to measurements, sometimes it does not. So that depends on the consistency of the muscles, the tendons, the foot. And we would talk about sensibilities of the feet or uh, I would check uh, some the, all the, the shape of the foot and the, the arch and and then we would talk about what the customer expects of the outcome. If he wants a very elegant shoe, if he wants an elegant but everyday shoe, or if he wants a rather casual shoe. So, so I'm trying to get the person to collaborate, to get involved, because it's not a ready-made product. So see it, take it, go away with it. So the more I can get the person to work with me, the, the more happy I am, really. And um, once we stabilized all that information, I, I would start making the last. So here I, I get back to my origins in making sketches. I would order a rough cut of the last, which has the basic measurements uh, included, and then I would work on it to get to the measurements of the person. Can I just ask you to explain what a last is? The last is a wooden shape, which is... Uh, the positive representation of the foot and I would make the negative, I think. Or what is it? I would build the shoe around the last and then the last is taken out. And it represents the foot, actually, but it's not the foot, it's... These are lasts, are they? Yeah, they are hanging above me. <laughs> yeah. And what are they made of? Of beech wood. It, it has to be hard wood because we are beating a lot on it. So uh, to, to force the leather in, into its shape, we we're also helping with the hammering. I love that you talked about it as a negative and a positive, almost like photography. Yeah, it is. It is, really. And the, the last, uh, they, they stay with me as the negative stay with the photo photographer. Sometimes uh, people ask, oh, well, can we take the shoe last with us? I said, no, 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 that's the diritto d'autore, that's... It stays with me as the negative stays with the photo. Is that the intellectual property? Yeah. Okay, so we have a last. I've come in and I've been measured for a last. What happens next? And can I ask you to explain the materials as we go? So the next step would be that I make a, a test pair. It's a proper uh, shoe, really. It's made with second choice materials and sometimes also recycled materials, but it's a working shoe, I say, because the, the customer has to wear it to find out if everything is as it should be. So that's for new customers. The risk of uh, having errors in the making of the last is about 20%, sometimes more. So doing this gives the guarantee that we get to 100% really nice fit. When you say second choice materials can 
you give us some examples? Talking about the skin of a box calf. So uh, the whole skin of the box calf, I can gain like two, sometimes three pair of first choice material, which I would cut out on the back of the animal. So going towards the belly and the neck, the fibers of the of the leather get looser because on the animal there is more movement on the on the belly and also on the neck and more fat inclusions among among the fibers. So that loosens the structure. For the first choice material, I want to have a really tight structure that doesn't move too much because I would pull it then on the last and it should not move anymore once it's on there. Because the leather, it doesn't have to give way to the foot because I have already the last made in the right measurement. So it shouldn't change anymore. Where do you source your leathers? The box calf leather I get from France. There is a wholesaler in Milan uh, I, I contact for. Then the sole leather, I actually changed uh, quite recently. I found this very near uh, tannery. It's, it's in the area of Pordenone, Porcia. It's Presot, and it's a traditional company. But uh, there are three, um, two brothers and a uh, young woman conducting the company and it's a very nice it's a very sustainable way of looking at this archaic product really they have uh, winning prizes about uh, no waste so they have a whole recycling of the water making their own energy for the machines it's an all natural product and they have uh, like workers from other continents from Africa having a proper contract, they have the chance to have their own garden cultivating uh, vegetables and having chicken for the eggs. And so it's very, very up, uh, up to date, this company. I think it's very sensitive the way they bring it in these times. And I got this and it's really good leather and that's for the soles uh, and for the reinforcements. Then um, special uh, leathers, uh, I get uh, like the Cordovan leather. There is this uh, company in almost in the city of Chicago producing horse leather. And it's a very special way of treatment because they, they would color it still by hand. It's a, it's a craft, crafts process there. And they would work in uh, waxes and uh, oils. And uh, it's a quite beautiful product. It's the luxury of today. As, as the customers, they do not seek any alligators anymore or uh, uh, reptiles in general. If they want to do something special, which costs a little more, they would choose a cordovan leather. It's got a very beautiful shine as it is. Um, like a suede leather, even though it doesn't look like suede because it's flat and shiny. But uh, the structure is, um, the, the how you turn it, the light reflects differently. So you have a very nice um, reflecting game on the color. That makes it so beautiful. Can you tell us about the 
technical process then of making? Well, the, the test bear, it's uh, fairly quickly done. It's just stuck on sole and uh, you've got a, a cork heel. But then the definite bear, it's all um, sculpts it on, on the last. So we prepare the insole, that's the sole touching the foot. You have to cut out a kind of wall through which you can later sew on the welt and connect like this the upper with the insole. I have to decide the position of the foot. If I give some more width on the outside to sustain the foot to bring it into a better position or other things, or if I want to reinforce the arch, the length arch, and already this is very personal. And uh, then I would make the patterns. We cut materials, sew it together on quite old machines, but perfectly working machines. They're still working with pedaling. And uh, then I would pull the upper. So I have, I have the upper which is made with the outer leather and the lining leather. And then we prepare the reinforcements. So the back of the shoe and the front of the shoe, the toe, they are always very stiff. So we prepare these, we cut them out from the sole leather and we make them thinner, we skive them with a clicking knife or with a skiving knife actually. And uh, all these materials now are worked in wet, condition. Humid. Humid. So uh, the leather normally stiff, it gets soft when it's humid. And uh, then I would pull it over with the lasting pincers. And as I said before, I have to pull to the maximum extension. It must not move anymore. I fix it with uh, nails and I would replace the nails with the seam of the welt. The welt is a, is a thin, long uh, piece of uh, leather, always talking about the thick, the, the sole leather, that makes a frame, a frame uh, around the shoe. I had the little wall already made, the insole, the lining, the reinforcement, the upper and the welt. So that's the, the shoe as it will stay for a very long time that the person wants to wear it. The sole can be replaced as it needs to be. So once the customer has a hole in the sole, the shoe comes back to me. I will put the last inside the shoe again and sew the sole through the same holes again. And the shoe is getting new. Actually, it's getting more and more beautiful wearing it and having a patina and uh, of course i forgot to talk about the heel the, the heel is made with uh, different layers of the sole leather still attaching each layer with a there's a vegetable glue and little wooden tacks so we would make the hole first and place then the wooden tack inside and also here uh, it's still sculpting really especially making a lady's heel a lady's heel is not just a straight heel, but you have uh, nice curves and everything. So that's about the process. In the end, 
uh, we have to take off the last and give space to the foot. And once the foot gets into it, it goes, it creates a kind of vacuum. <laughs> yeah, really. It's, it's, it's true, it's true. <laughs> the customers are always surprised <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. That must be a very satisfying moment. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> that means you've done it perfectly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and what sort of time does it take? I'm sure they vary, but yeah, what sort of time? I, I give an average amount of time of about eighty hours, about two weeks of time. And do you make your own shoes? I do. I do. That was a kind of commitment since I have my own workshop. So since twenty years, I have to wear my own shoes. And your family? Yeah, my, my husband, he has I have shoes made by me. I was trying to make shoes for my little boy. And at a certain time, it doesn't, it didn't work anymore. So I think <laughs> children... They very fast, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, they have other needs, really. So I did a nice pair of kind of sandals for him. And he was like making a short sprint of a couple of meters and stopping and it didn't work i said no mama this doesn't work <laughs> they're not sporty enough <laughs> i think they need a very soft and rubber sole rather than a leather construction i think that's fair enough one day he would want a pair of shoes maybe being bigger <laughs> so i want to just come back to the idea of, of venice yeah how did you end up here and what does it mean that you're here what's the significance of you being in Venice with your, your profession? I was working for a shoemaker and then I, I went away and came back because I wanted to make an exhibition in his uh, workshop. Uh, I had another project in Japan realized and uh, and that was the moment that he wanted to get rid of his workshop. He, he asked me, uh, do you want to take over? There is another person interested. Why don't you do it together? And uh, I said, wow. Well, I think about it and uh, and actually we found out that the other person we would have different ideas and uh, it wouldn't work but in this time I was helping him as well to get to an end his orders and uh, in this time I found this my workshop it was vacant and I could rent it yeah and I said why not Lannis so uh, I think it was quite interesting. I never said, oh, one day I want to make sh uh, be a shoemaker in Venice. No, it happened to be because also many friends of mine, Venetians, they wanted this to happen. And I think I would have never done it on my own, just one person. It's not a singular construction, the whole thing. So everybody was kind of helping and, and oh yeah, they wanted it to happen. and. So it did, and I didn't expect anything. And then I found myself in the workshop. I said, "Okay, <laughs> let's do it here." <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think the Venetians they need such realities, and uh, and I also need Venice. I mean, it's not a metropole like uh, London or, or Paris, like where you have the customers living there. I am working with uh, tourism. I'm working for for people coming from abroad. And I think it's a very nice solution, really. Uh, not being a metropole, 
the living conditions in Venice are much better than they would be in London or Paris. It's, it's much easier to live in Venice, but still I can work with the same clientele. And uh, especially in Venice, I mean, that's the, that's the walking city. You don't buy tires for the, for the car, but you buy good shoes because you have to walk. And it's, I think the city is made to measure to the humans. For me, it made the same noise, kind of. <laughs> are there other shoemakers in Venice? There are, yeah. We are three ladies. Three ladies making shoes, each of us has their own ideas and uh, very nice products. It's still a lot, I think, being anyway. Nowadays, it's a very small city, but still having three hand-making shoemakers it's quite exceptional. But you've obviously got a lot of heart for sharing your skills. Do you share the skills in other ways? All the time, really. I always have young people working with me, uh, trainees, uh, staying more or less. Recently, I have uh, exchanges from Erasmus, people coming from Slovenia, Austria, France as well. So uh, I've always had people working with me, except of the pandemic year one, I didn't have anybody. And then I'm teaching, I different teaching experiences in various universities. Latest, uh, it was in Venice University. They have the fashion department, shoe and accessories workshop. And uh, I think it's great. I'm curious because shoes have become such potent symbols recently with with refugees and sometimes uh, protests. Mm -mm. I quite liked, I went um, to Rwanda once. I had a workshop there as well, teaching to European students in Rwanda, but with a Rwandan craftsman. And uh, I liked it because um, these African countries, they are flooded with um, Chinese industrial products. So the common shoes there would be the plastic sandals. But the beauty there is that they recycle the plastics. They, they would repair them and they make the most beautiful things with them. I mean, actually for our terms, these products are not repairable. You, you use them, you throw them away. But they would care for them, as we do here for a made to measure shoe, <laughs> almost. <laughs> they really get the best out of it, and, and for the longest possible. Have you made a pair of shoes for someone and recognized how important to them it was? Yes, of course. It happened several times to me. I'm also working for the Salzburg Festival and they make uh, made-to-measure dresses, hats, wigs, and shoes. So I'm going there every year in the month of July. And we make uh, made-to-measure shoes for the solo singers, mainly, but also for exceptional productions, I mean. And there I could tell that they have very particular needs. They have to feel first, they have to feel very well in their shoes, and sometimes Exactly, this fundament is so important. Uh, once I had this very small lady, I don't even remember her name, she was a great singer. She had a little 
difficult feat. But anyway, she was working very hard with me to get it right. And then she would plant their feet on the stage and push out this enormous voice from this little lady. And, and it was so important for her to have this earth link, or oh, earth link, it's not earth, but it's a stage link, with the shoes. And if th this wouldn't be right, she wouldn't be able to concentrate and give her best, really. And it was especially for her and also for others, very important. So that's why there they still offer this service of made-to-measure shoes at, at the Salzburg Festival. Also the, the sustain of the, 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 the holding of the feet. Uh, there was another thing, actually, she wanted it tighter than I expected it uh, to make. I, I would have given her more freedom, but she wanted it tighter, 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 tighter. And again, this tightness on the feet, and she was bringing out the, her best. I'm talking about two different people, but so it's, it's very important for these personalities, uh, singers, to have a particular footwear. It's amazing just to think, did you watch their performances? I do. Yeah. I do. I have to. <laughs> I'm uh, very lucky I have to. It's the general rehearsal we watch. Um, so, so all the people working for the workshop, they, they have to see it. I think it's very important to see. We recorded some sounds of Venice and we recorded the footsteps of people going over the bridges. And I noticed there was no, no women were wearing heels. There was no heels. No. I never, and heels make a nice sound, so I wanted to, to get some, but no heels. Well, uh, yeah, it, you know, walking nicely in, in Venice with the heels. You have these stones and you get in between and you have the many bridges. It's not, it's not fun. So ladies going for a, a cocktail a meeting, they, they would bring their high heels in the, in the bag and the changes just change them just before entering. But then there is a little anecdote. So I'm living around the corner here and my landlord, he was a, a baron, a noble. And we were twice invited in his home and uh, he was already blind. He was actually a, a composer of modern music. And um, he quite liked the idea to rent the apartment to a craftsman. He came by every now and then. And, once um, he, he brought us to the door and said, ah, yeah, he, you have certainly made-to-measure shoes. And he had as well. And he said, you know what the difference is? It's a sound when you click the heels one to each other, this one. And that's the difference. <laughs> and he says, well, I do as well. We both clicked <laughs> So that's the sound of the heel, <laughs> of the made-to-measure shoe. <laughs> So thanks to Gabrielle Gemeiner for sharing her story. You can discover more on her website, gabriellegemeiner.com, or on Instagram, at gabriellegemeiner. And thanks to you for listening. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of the work discussed on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, and on Instagram. If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, please subscribe to our newsletter on our website, so we can let you know when the next episode goes live. Thank you.
Thank you.